This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvest of Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. you got your hosts here, Justin Townsend, and uh, joined today by Adam. Uh, and we're going to talk about more butchering techniques and uh, a little bit of information on some meat cuts. As promised in previous episodes, uh, today we're going to focus on the flat iron steak. And uh, we decided to couple that with the mock tender since they're both generally in the same location. It's a good... Uh, I think combination talk about both different cuts, both also like opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to uh, tenderness, uh, fat content and things like that. So uh, be some good variation that if you want to really dial into the front shoulder, um, these cuts up in the uh, the blade roast area are going to be cool, cool to mess around with, cool to cut out and and sort of uh, test out. So Let's cover a little bit, I guess, on some current events. Um, let's see, return from Steamboat Springs up in, in the far northwestern part of Colorado here just this past weekend. Enjoyed a weekend up there, and uh, uh, on Sunday got to do a bit of fishing. And uh, my son, pretty stoked, caught his first trout, like hook hook and reeled in by himself on his little pole. Uh, so he was super pumped about it. And of course he followed up with like, let's eat it. Let's eat it. So, uh, last night we made a delicious, uh, gochujang and, uh, chili oil marinated trout. And what we did is I took it, uh, and threw it in a, uh, hot, a hot wok full of oil, a, a wok full of hot oil. There we go. Um, 
and uh, it, it was pretty good. I sent Adam the video, and then we later on like posted a little reel on Instagram. So if you want to see that, but holy smokes, Adam, you were right. That that skin on that trout was super crispy, and uh, we let it marinate in in the the sauce, and it kind of uh, it got inside the meat, and it really gave it a good good flavor. That coupled with sort of the caramelization in the skin and on the inside, it, it was really really good. So. How's your little guy with spice? Was he able to eat it fine? Yeah, I didn't make it too, too spicy. So uh, I, I added more. So I cooked his and Zoe's first. And then I added uh, Marjorie's, my wife and I. Uh, I added more chili oil into ours. And then even when I ate it, I put more chili oil on it. But uh, it was pretty good. We served it with, um, made some like sauteed edamame, some mushrooms, and um red bell peppers all like cut up and so we put it on top of that and uh i tried to keep it as intact as possible so i did like you know the technique where they serve whole fish and they'll take it and they'll they'll knock the fins off of it mm-hmm. and then they'll they'll uh, portion it out basically like slide the meat off the bone uh so i did that and tried to like keep it as uh as intact as possible without the bones so that the the kids could enjoy it and and they really did so it was pretty fun i liked it probably do it again maybe play around with some of the marinades maybe about seeing about marinating it a little longer i've really gotten keen on uh aging the trout so i'll take it uh after i catch it clean it uh take the head off uh (coughs) excuse me clean it take the head off get it back home and i'll put it on a baking rack in the refrigerator for about a day and a half two days and it dries it out but it also like it it ages it a bit without over drying it because the trouts are generally pretty small um and i just find like it creates this delicious like buttery taste in the meat that that i don't normally find if i just cook fresh trout so pretty pretty tasty. I'm experimenting right now actually with um, some whitefish fillets that I had in the freezer, and I'm letting them uh, kind of I defrosted them in the fridge with in a paper towel to soak up any of the the water from the freezing process in there, and I'm letting them sit there for two days, drying out, get a little tacky, and just see what's what's going to happen with like uh, doing it with frozen fish. Um, I'm not sure huh. what's going to happen, but I'm going to see soon, so we'll see how it goes. It's good. Could be a good uh, good article topic yeah. on uh, techniques to improve frozen fish. Yeah. It definitely helps stewing it in know. the uh, paper towel to soak up because when you freeze fish, it just tends to get so much water, like really waterlogged. Um, yeah. And if you throw that right in the pan, all that water is going to come out first before the fish sears. Then you get kind of like a soggy, overcooked fish. So if nothing else, you should people should yeah. definitely like get that dry before cooking it. No, I agree. I that's why I like that that baking rack, and it's just like, you know, you do it for like when you pull your cookies out of the oven, you're gonna cool them or whatever. Or you put things on there and you put them on that baking rack, and it just elevates them a little bit. Um, that's why I make cookies all taste I, I like, like fish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, ah, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> um, but what's been going on up in uh, in your neck of the woods? Not a whole lot. I've been uh, pretty busy. Been out uh, doing some foraging while dog walking quite a bit lately, actually. There's a lot of cool um, urban foraging to be done right now. There's a latest one I did was a, uh, I found a bunch of pin cherry trees 
And pin cherries are like small, they're almost shrubs with really small, super sour, bitter cherries. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't taste good just eating them. They kind of make your mouth pucker and leave it all dry feeling. But uh, Ooh, like really tainted. Yeah, but they make excellent jelly, and I made jelly in the past with them. So um, right now, but I don't really eat jams and jellies. I discovered after I made like dozens of jars of jelly, and I don't actually ever eat it, so I ended up just giving it all away. So same with me. Yeah. I do the same. I don't. My kids like it, but I'm. It, it's not my not my cup of tea. Yeah, not really. Ironically, I'm drinking a cup of tea right now. So, <laughs> but I thought this uh, I'm going to do some some uh, liqueur with it. I think I was talking about ooh service berries on the last podcast, but uh, so I have some service berry liqueur going and some pin cherry liqueur going and some hazelnut. So I'll open those at Christmas time. I think. And then, um, interesting. I also harvested some some green pine cones off an Austrian pine, and I'm making. Uh, I think it's called like Mulio or Mulio syrup, um, which is something I got from Alan Burgo, the forager chef. He has a recipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just basically macerate them in brown sugar, ferment them, and then cook down the syrup into like or cook down the liquid into a syrup, which I never tried before. So I'm excited to try that. So that be a couple of weeks, I think. So. S- Similarly, I'm doing. Uh, we when we came back from uh, Steamboat, we went over one of the passes, and uh, I'd missed the the lower elevation spruce tip harvest, mm. but we were able to harvest uh, probably like a half a gallon bag off a off a big area of spruces, and so I, I same thing. I've got some going for some spruce tip syrup because uh, my family like really enjoys it. Mm. We we will substitute it in for like maple syrup pretty commonly. Um, but same thing, you just take the spruce tips and just equal parts spruce tips, equal part uh, brown sugar. Uh, I'll use like the turbarindo sugar. Yeah. Probably Tur- Turbinado or something. Yeah, turbinado. There we go. Uh, and just put equal parts of that in a jar and just let it set. And it the sugar starts to pull the moisture out of the spruce tips. And it creates like this delicious piney syrup. And then we'll, we'll take the other half of that batch and make a spruce tip jam with it, which like you, like I'll, I still have some from last year. I'll, I'll keep, you know, a couple cans of it and end up gifting out the rest. Mm. So um, I wonder if that would be good with that. Uh, you know, the British serve like mint jelly with lamb. I wonder if the spruce, mm-hmm. spruce jelly would go good with venison. Yeah, maybe that's a good, that's a good out. test. Yeah. yeah. That's worth looking at for sure. Um, let's see what else happened. Oh, Colorado's secondary draw came out. I got a nice, lovely bear tag, so I'm excited about that. So, try to do a fall bear uh, in addition to my elk. Uh, yeah, so should be pretty fun. Cool. Yeah, any anything else for you? That's about it for me. I think. Um, All right, sweet. Me. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about some meat. So, uh, I guess looking at our first cut we could talk about and we may like the way we have it listed out is is not by like cut we're just kind of going to go back and forth between the two cuts as we work through the different sections but so like the physical description of a cut so uh what is a flat iron i guess as it comes down to it so you'll hear a flat iron uh called a butler steak a feather blade steak or i think in australia they call them oyster blade steaks which interesting um, I wonder the origin. I don't know. Maybe it's because you have to take out the tendon in the middle, but it kind of like hinges. I, I, don't I don't know. Who knows? But um, so in both of them are from the front shoulder, both the flat iron and the mock tender from the front shoulder. So 
so essentially like it's from the the flat iron is from the back part of if you've got your scapula right so uh if you're looking at your scapula and you have it face up where we'll say the ridge is running down the middle and uh looking at the animal's shoulder the forward part of that is where you'd have your mock tender your chuck tender and then the back part of that is where you would have your flat iron and i thought it was really interesting to know that like the flat iron cut itself is relatively new mm-hmm. um like so i guess back in the late 90s the um the beef world was suffering a bit from sales uh, due to probably various reasons in the late 90s. Um, And there were researchers at both University of Florida and University of Nebraska that were tasked to look at various beef cuts. Their task in particular was to look at the cheaper beef cuts to see how they could be better utilized, be better promoted, and then therefore increase beef sales. well, what they discovered is uh, the chuck, the shoulder, um, you know, the chuck is like a larger cut of uh, section of beef on the primal. It is a primal cut uh, that's then broken down and different. But since we're talking about wild game, we'll kind of zone in on the shoulder. And we'll, we'll use chuck and shoulder pretty synonymously in this episode. But so they looked at the chuck and they said, hey, wait, there are actually some tender cuts in here. And uh, so they identified what we know now as the flat iron to be one of those very tender cuts that's located in the front shoulder. And, uh, you know, identified that, identified the cut, popularized it amongst butchers. And I guess in the early 2000s, Applebee's was one of the first, like, institutions to put it on and market it on the menu is like this flat iron steak. And uh, it gets its name because it's the once you cut it, it's kind of like square and flat, like an old. Uh, you remember those old irons? My grandmother had one. Not that she used it, but she had one that like propped a door open. But it was like with the handle and like the big, you know, metal cast iron section uh, that they'd use to like heat up and then press close with. So that's where it gets its name from one of those old flat irons but a relatively new cut and i think it was like albertson's or one of the grocery chains was one of the first ones to start selling it um i think what's really cool about it is that it is on domestic meat super marbled cut of meat and even on game meat very tender um it does have a lot of uh, well, it has more fat than other cuts would be there, which would make it uh, tender. The only thing that's, I guess, a little unique about it is that um, if you just take it straight off the scapula, which I guess we can go into in just here in a minute, is that uh, there's a connect set of connective tissues and tendons that run right through the middle of it. So instead of t- treating it as one steak, is like this is the flat iron. You actually take that tendon out, and you treat it as two stakes. So essentially, if you take them off both shoulders, you have four stakes, which is good. So they're like four four good sized portions. So I'm like an elk. They're pretty pretty sizable steak cuts. I mean, even on a a mule deer or a whitetail, you're gonna get nice cuts. On a antelope, probably pretty small cuts because they generally have pretty small shoulders uh, to begin with. But still, like a lot of good usable meat on that. Um, and I think probably I've never taken one directly off of a black bear, but I would think like a black bear, uh, probably like a moose. They'd probably have some good marbled bison good or, or meat. nail guy. Probably. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I don't know, Adam, you were researching a bit too. Do you have any, any fun facts or tidbits that stood out to you? Apparently the, the fact that you have to separate the, the two stakes from that fascia, the silver skin, everything in between them, um, it was a big ask for, for meat plants to do because it's such finicky work. So it ended up, um, the flat iron never really caught on like they, they'd hoped because it was like brought about in order to boost beef sales. But in the end, not many people picked, actually picked it up. So apparently it was because meat packers didn't want to go through the extra effort of, of separating the two muscles. But the average, uh, home butcher can do it quite easily, which is kind of cool because you're not yeah. working with thousands of animals. So it's, it's only a matter of like nope. separating the two. So, so for a home butcher, it's actually quite simple. And for the, the meat industry, it was a little too difficult. And I think as far as like identifying the cut, like you've got the shoulder there in front of you, you're, it's like very clear, like, Oh, this side is the mock tender. This side is the flat iron. And I mean, you can see the tendon running through it. Uh, on game animals because it's like very clear of like here's your dark red meat here's this white tendon and here's your dark red meat again and like yeah if you don't take that tendon out you're gonna cook that cut of meat and just be like what is this and i'm like sawing through as i'm eating it it won't be too nice it's an interesting cut too because it is a hard-working muscle and it carries a lot of weight like much of the shoulder and uh those muscles tend not to be too tender and it's actually known to be the, or thought to be the second most tender um, muscle in the body next to the tenderloin. Um, so it's going to be on par with your back straps or whatever. And apparently the reason for it is that it has really um, thin and short muscle fibers compared to a lot of the other muscles in the shoulder. Uh, and that allows the, when you slice it, to it allows some extra tenderness, even though it's a part of like a hardworking muscle group. So it's a pretty special kind of unicorn steak that's hidden in there and i would say like opposite side of the spectrum from the mock tender uh or you hear it called the chuck tender or scott steak or a petite filet fish uh, fish um, steak i've heard fish steak i heard that yeah. one as well i'm guessing because of the shape yeah. um but that so contrary to its name not necessarily a tender cut right away as you think about like tender cuts being something you can cook like hot and fast. Um, I, I think that the mock tender is something better prepared uh, slow and it, unlike Adam mentioned for the flat iron, which has short grains of uh, strains of meat inside of it, the mock tender are long, like medium sized grains. Uh, so that's going to generally yield a tougher bite. Um, which is just, just interesting, uh, that they're very, very close to each other, just each on the other, on the opposite side of that scapula, scapula ridge. I don't know. The ridge of the scapula is a term for it. It's, it's funny too, that the mock tender has the word tender in it, but it's not tender at all. And the the name comes from the shape kind of looks like a tenderloin, uh, but the yeah, it's a bit of a misnomer because people would assume that's a tender one, but really it's the you know, the mm-hmm. other one, the the flat iron that's gonna be a lot more tender. 
But it's still a really great cut of meat. Um, we'll talk here in a second about sort of like some culinary uses for it. But also, too, like not a lot of information on that particular cut. Generally, it gets lumped into like chuck steaks or um, uh, the blade roast or the chuck roast or just like combined. I don't see people breaking it out as much. But I definitely think like if you're thinking through as a home butcher and you're like, I want to use this cut for what it would be best for i think you could break it off uh you can toss in the grind pile for sure i think that was a cut that would be great for the grind pile but i think there's also some fun things you could do with it um we've got a couple recipes that i think would would tie very well into it um but as far as removing them i know i started talking about it so if you've got your your scapula sort of ridge up to you and the back is your the back of the scapula ridge the rear facing part is where your flat iron is the fore facing part of it is where your mock tender is mock tender is going to be pretty easy to get out you're going to see that that fore part of the ridge of the scapula just kind of like so slowly slopes in you can get your knife in there pretty easy and just kind of like follow it in peel it off You'll have to clean up the tendons because there's some tendons and connective tissue that, that connect to that mock tender. You'll see it and just remove those and you'll end up with like kind of this fish shape. It's almost like uh, it's kind of fat in the middle and tapers on each end is, is the best way to describe the cut itself. Um, if you're looking at the flat iron though, the ridge of the scapula kind of starts to curve backwards towards like the rear end of the animal so you've got some meat that hides underneath that ridge that you want to basically turn your knife towards the front of the scapula and kind of follow it down and around and underneath uh, to kind of get that meat out of there and then like we mentioned you want to clean it up there'll be a bit of connective tissue and then just take that tendon out in the middle and you'll find that that meat is like super tender. So yeah. I think that's probably the easiest way to remove it. Any, anything I'm missing, Adam? I don't think so. I think when you when you're removing the center the center tendons or silver skin or whatever, you'll notice that there's a bit of a tail on the one end. You'll just see the silver skin poking out in the middle. If you can grab mm-hmm. your thumb and finger on that, and then take your bony knife on an angle and scrape down the whole thing, you'll remove the top part, flip it over let the silver skin sit on your butcher surface, whatever, and then take the bone knife again and run it along the top of the silver skin. Then you have your other steak. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's quite simple to, to actually remove the two. Um, if you just follow, follow that silver skin with your, with your boning knife. Yeah. And that's actually, you brought up a good point as far as like, we always recommend and we teach with sort of a nine inch flexible boning knife. So you'll hear us refer to a boning knife for like this sort of detailed butchery work a lot that, uh, you know, you see a lot of people using like sort of the rounded skinners or, uh, the disposable blade knives. I think once the meat's off the carcass and you have it in, like we don't, uh, don't have it in use that much. Like it's going to be more that boning knife to do that detailed work. Yeah, and your boning knife can really do everything. Um, it doesn't stake wonderfully, like cutting steaks, but it can. It can do it. And there, like I remember when I was a butcher in the past, uh, I would do an entire moose with just one little boning knife. So you you don't need to invest in an array of knives. You can kind of like invest in in a decent boning knife 
doesn't have to be over a hundred bucks and just that's going to be your main tool for for all your butchering needs yeah i think the one that we the one that we use is just like it's a dexter or um something pretty straightforward like not not a super expensive knife one of those white or black plastic handled ones you're just looking for the flex and that's going to come into play when we start talking about meat more in the center part of the animal along the you know the ribs or or things like that or you get back into the joints and the hind quarters and you want that flex in there mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So let's see. So we talked about what the cuts are and where they're located. So we definitely talked about how to remove the cuts. Um, it, these are all cuts, too, you could leave uh, connected as well if you wanted. So if you wanted to keep the blade roast intact, you have another muscle uh, that's present in uh, in beef cows that's there. And what is it? Is it trace majeure? That's the oh, three muscles that are in the top... Yeah, the top shoulder. It's not as prominent or present in game animals as it is in beef. Um, so that's why we don't really cover that third muscle. But, you know, if you're looking at domestic stuff, that's definitely there. Um, but for game animals, just looking at these two primary. But you could also take them completely off the bone and then treat them as like a roast, um, which would work as well. Um, and that would be your blade roast. So... Looking at um, looking at cooking now, as we sort of transition into this, um, I think that an interesting part is that they're both on very opposite sides of the spectrum with the meat quality. So that's generally going to be an opposite side of the spectrum for preparation. Um, looking at the flat iron itself, that's something that you um, you could do stir fry fajitas, uh, grilling. It would be great with marinades as well uh, to just do something quick because you don't really need the marinades to penetrate deep into the meat to try to tenderize. Um, I think that a cool fact that I found out about this is that um, for a flat iron, a lot of people will flip it synonymously with the flank steak or the hanger steak. But those are also two different cuts. But they said the meat behaves very similarly. Uh, it's got a lot of bite and chew to it. But that the the flat iron itself contains more sort of like that bold flavor from the animal. So if you're looking for something that's got a good like uh, meat taste to it, I think you're going to enjoy the flat iron. Um, and that's the kind of the nice thing about the, these. Yeah. 
this section of muscles that we're dealing with, if you can picture, I'm just going to go with, with beef for now, but if you can picture a eating a tenderloin versus a ribeye and the amount of beefiness you get from that ribeye compared to, compared to that tenderloin, which is rather bland, um, everything moving towards the front of the animal, towards the shoulders is going to get beefier and beefier. And so the muscles are working a lot harder. There's a lot more blood flow passing through it. And it's going to develop like way more flavor. And these little steaks, like these flat iron steaks, are going to be, um, I'm just going to use the word beefy, but meaty. Like it's going to have tons of flavor. It's going to be really beefy. It's going to be a super flavorful steak. And they're nice and tender. So uh, it's a really special. It's a special little steak you can pull out of there that's that's got tons of flavor and lots of tenderness, which you don't always get at the same time when you're dealing with, with different cuts. So it's a, it's a pretty special little cut. And even the mock tender, which isn't quite so tender, it's still going to have a ton of that flavor, like that beefiness or meatiness that you're looking for too. So so um, I've always preferred kind of front of the animal cuts for that reason. Like I like that kind of meaty flavor rather than the kind of bland um, hindquarter um, cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I find these very special. No, I, I agree with you. And, and too, I appreciate the fact, I think I remember the first time uh, thinking really deeply about the flat iron steak is uh, back, geez, back probably like season one or season two of our podcast. We had Hank on, Hank Shaw, and uh, we were talking about the flat iron steak and it just like kind of piqued my interest. And ever since then, I just like started paying more and more attention to it, cutting it out, making sure I had it set aside and wanting to use it. Uh, just because it was brought to my attention. And I feel like even overall for home butchers, it's a relatively new cut of meat and that that is getting people's attention as they're learning to, to butcher themselves. So I think it's, it's really, really cool. Um, even amongst the world of domestic animals to not have this cook as like, or this cut as prominent. Yeah. Speaking of Hank Shaw, actually, I found, um, he had written somewhere that when dealing with, with um, the flat iron steak, he actually, especially when he, you pull it off like a deer or something a little smaller, you're dealing with like thinner, smaller steaks than you would say from a cow or from uh, an elk or something. He recommends that you put them on the, say you're going to grill or sear them, to actually do it when the meat's still cool. So most literature will tell you to let, the, let your steak come to room temperature before you hit it and put it on the grill. But because these things are potentially quite a bit thinner, um, you're going to leave the steak cooler in the middle and then it won't uh, overcook so fast. So that was like a little tidbit I learned from Hank Shaw on his, on his website, which is pretty cool. Ooh, yeah. No, that's that's a good tip. I hadn't even thought about that too because, yeah, with it being so prone to overcooking, uh, you could run that steak pretty quickly. So. Um. So let's let's switch over here to the mock tender a bit and talk about cooking it. So Adam mentioned earlier, like definitely opposite, more not tender as the name would imply. But uh, probably looking at this cut, I would recommend either braising um, or the sous vide. Yeah. Uh, I think sous vide would be like wonderful on this cut of meat because I think too – if you think about just taking the mock tender hole and putting it in, 
into a sous vide bag with whatever you want to put in there to flavor it with. I mean, you can go as basic as like butter and rosemary and garlic and spices and just go from there. Or you can, you know, get fancy with sauces or all kinds of things. Um, but it is one of those cuts that if you are going to braise it or stew it or sous vide it, it's going to get tender after several hours. And I think like a, a sous vide would be a great way to approach that. And then you could even hit that reverse sear uh, afterwards with the sous vide and just like give that thing a nice, uh, a nice bark to it. And you would probably have a really enjoyable cut of meat uh, or you would have a really enjoyable, not probably you would have a good, good enjoyable cut of meat but i also think too you could you can grill it um it would be something you would want to pound flat uh with like a meat mallet or a meat tenderizer or you could use your jacquard <laughs> if uh if you've got one handy and you know just like pop that thing full of holes after you pound it flat um and uh i, I think those could be some methods to sort of bring some tenderizing to that i would say that uh unlike the flat iron which could or could not take a marinade like i think you would want a marinade or some sort of tenderizing effect on uh the mock tender for sure yeah so bring it back to the sous vide another good reason to go that route with uh with the mock tender is that the once you take the piece the cut out it's actually tapered on both ends kind of like a tenderloin which is why it's called the mock tender and if you picture throwing that whole thing into on the griller in a cast iron pan, those tapered um, ends are going to cook way faster than the middle. So you're going to have maybe a nicely medium rare middle and then overdone tapered ends. But using yeah. the sous vide will, will help take care of that. So that's good reason. such a good Ooh. tip. Yeah. And then you could hit it with that reverse sear. Yeah. Um, I would say other two like, great for stews Mm -hmm. like chunking it up you like making that meat the same size and as i mentioned like it getting tender over a couple hours uh braising too you definitely see like adam mentioned even in braising you're gonna see uh you're gonna see those tapered ends cook faster than the center i mean if you were gonna braise it i would probably recommend like just taking off those ends and just putting them sort of in your like your grind pile and just like trying to make that uh is equal size of cut as you can. Mm-hmm. I know it's kind of hard with that cut, but I think there's some room to, to do that. Um, stir fries would be good for it too. Um, so you can slice thinly and then use a velveting technique, which is a Chinese technique where you uh, basically marinate it and it would tenderize the cut and it would cook nice and nice and quickly in a wok. So I would, I've done stir fries before with them and it's worked out really well. Yeah, will you explain a little bit the velveting technique? We've talked about it a couple times, but this is a good point to sort of go into it a little more. Sure. it's uh, So if you've had Chinese takeout, which I'm sure most of us have had, um, and you can picture that, like, the the chicken or the beef or whatever you get, um, it's kind of like almost spongy sounds like a bad word, but it's a little spongy. It's super tender. It's got this, like, mm-hmm. texture that you don't find anywhere else. And that's because it was uh, velveted. And basically, to velvet something, you're going to coat it in either a little bit of baking soda or cornstarch corn or a combination of the both. Um, usually along with some... Um, the Chinese would use like Shaoqing wine, which is like a cooking wine. You could use cooking sherry or wine or nothing. 
and a little bit of soy sauce, and then you just let that marinate for 15 to 20 minutes, and there's a kind of chemical reaction that's going to take place, and it's going to actually tenderize your meat in that fashion that's going to give you that kind of special texture that you only get at Chinese takeout places. Um, and once you hit that in the hot wok, because um, we're talking about stir-fries, it's kind of a North American way of stir-frying where you throw like a ton of stuff into a skillet and let it sit there forever and then put sauce on it. Like um, the Chinese do it in like a insanely hot wok. Like it's a matter of seconds basically that you're cooking it. And that's where these like super thinly sliced velveted pieces of meat work really well on that. So it hits the like insanely hot oil. You cook it for like a couple seconds, add your veggies, add your sauce, and it's done. And uh, that's an excellent way to cook wild game and an excellent way to cook kind of tougher cuts like that because they get tenderized they're super flavorful and they cook really quick so you don't overcook them it's uh i I tend to do that a lot and i think too with like the mock tender like if you were gonna cut that you would want it almost like still partially frozen Mm -hmm. and you're gonna cut like kind of uh down the loin or down the, the mock tender into like discs and basically like have these like little discs of meat you could quickly cook and that will help uh, breaking down that grain, the meat grain is what we're referring to because when you think about chewing, if you've got something that like very long and sinewy, uh, stringy, it's like a lot to chew, right? Your mouth's trying to get through it. You're biting, you're crunching, you're biting, you're crunching, and you're like trying to tear with your teeth. If you've broken those long grains down into short grains, it makes it easier for you to chew. And uh, that's kind of what creates that, that tenderness too. So that's like yeah. uh, would this – cuts really an ideal candidate for that feathering technique and, and stir frying. So, um, and talk about the, the meat grain again. Um, when I was talking about earlier that these, that the, the reason these cuts are so beefy is cause they have all the blood flow and everything running through them. It's also a good reason to let them rest longer than other cuts. So if you say grill or sear up some, some, uh, backstrap or loin, whatever steaks, uh, you let them, uh, rest and hang out for 10-15 minutes after you cook them, let everything, the juices redistribute. Uh, these shoulder cuts, they actually, because they have so many more, so much more um, blood flow and juices and everything in them, and, the, and the, the meat grain is a little different, a little hardier, I would say. Um, it actually takes longer for them to redistribute after you cook them, so it's a good idea to let, give like an extra five minutes or so in your resting period after you sear the, if, say if you're doing steaks. You won't have to do that for stir fries or braising or anything, but if you're doing it as steaks, uh, yeah, definitely give it a little extra time for for resting. Sweet, and actually, I'll talk a little bit about the braising technique too, because we don't we talk about it a lot, but we don't think we've hit it. We've hit it some in detail, but maybe not thoroughly. But so, if you're looking at braising this, so what you're going to do is uh, you're going to have a couple components. Um, You'll have the your liquid, and you'll have your meat, and you'll have your pan <laughs> to start there. Uh, oil as well. So generally what you'll do is some sort of sear on the meat quickly in the hot pan, and then you'll add, uh, you'll add the meat into the pan, and then you'll put whatever liquid you're going, and you're not completely submerging the cut of meat. You want part of it to be exposed, and... You're basically then like covering it and slow cooking it until the meat becomes tender, like pull apart fork tender. And so that technique of braising, you're going to get a lot of flavors in the uh, 
in in the meat and in the sauce which you can then you know you'll hear people talk about like pot roast pot roast in its form is braising essentially uh beef bourguignon braising um we talk a lot about braising shanks here that is braising um but uh the cool thing about that is in that searing technique you're getting uh that brown bits on the bottom of the of the pan which is called fond and then your liquids putting in there and you're deglazing it but you're adding those delicious caramelized brown bits of protein back into your sauce and then you're also maintaining a moisture content uh in the braising liquid that is then help tenderizing your meat uh through that uh process of cooking so very useful techniques for lots and lots of uh cheap cuts cheap cuts tough cuts uh, that, uh, Adam, Adam swears by it, that if you don't know what a cut is, just braise it and you're likely going to, uh, it's going to turn out well. So, um, I think that's kind of like the wave tops of sort of like the cooking recommendations and the cooking techniques on, on these particular cuts. We can get into some of the recipes we've got here. Uh, and, and I'll go first, uh, Adam, just pick from the list as, as you see fit, uh, to sort of like run through these, uh, we won't no particular order, but, um, I'll, I'll start with the first one I have listed and it's not necessarily for the steak recipe attached to it, but it's more for the chimichurri because one, I really love chimichurri Two, I really love this recipe of the chimichurri sauce, which chimichurri is just, uh, it's just an herbaceous, uh, sauce that, that originates down in like South America and a lot of other, uh, cultures use it as well. Um, this particular one pulls a lot of influence from like Argentina. Um, but the chimichurri itself is pretty magical. Uh, you just get to use things like parsley and cilantro and, uh, use coriander and cumin, red pepper flakes, red wine vinegar, garlic, and, uh, oil. You essentially take everything but the oil and you put in your food processor, your blender, and you just kick it on and then slowly add your oil in to let it all incorporate. And you end up with this like really amazing sauce that just goes well on tons of steak, uh, grilled steak, is probably my favorite. Um, I use this particularly with some like stuffed venison steaks, steaks, <laughs> stuffed venison steaks, uh, which I actually used uh, uh, some flank steak. Um, but I would say this sauce would be incredible on on the the flat irons, like some nice, delicious, crispy grilled flat iron steaks with some chimichurri on top. Um, I, I think it would be phenomenal. Adam, Adam, what you got? What are you thinking? I was thinking for one for the mock tender. Um, I have a recipe on my website, intrepidator.com, um, that is called uh, venison seg ghost. And I might be saying that wrong, but it's an Indian dish of, um, of meat and, and spinach. So you might have run into sag paneer in, in restaurants, Indian restaurants, which is like a paneer cheese and spinach. So uh, this one... I've used uh, different parts of the shoulder for it. Um, I've used a round before as well, but I think the mock tender would be a perfect cut for it because um, you're doing like a, a basically a braise, uh, like you mentioned before, and um, turning into a curry. 
and you're going to add a lot of like different spices and tomato and yogurt and ginger and garlic and all sorts of really good stuff. And like I mentioned before, that, that meatiness or the beefiness of the, of the cut of the mock tender is going to shine through that, those big flavors, um, which is really nice. If used something that's a lot more mild, it's just going to get lost in all those spices. But, uh, but using really flavorful things like, like a mock tender, or you could use like a, like, um, chuck or neck or shanks, like all those are really flavorful cuts and they work really nicely in something that's like got a ton of flavor, like a curry. No, I think that's really good. And, uh, those are good. Hits the wicket of that braising. Um, Let's see, I'll, I'll talk next to, uh, I did like a Gaoshujang steak and broccoli, so we were talking about stir-fry. Uh, this one I did not do the feathering technique on. I just kind of like uh, used the Gaoshujang, which is a, a Korean like pepper paste. It's like um, fermented. Of sorts. Yeah. Fermented, yeah. Uh, you can find it. It's starting to become more and more popular. I find it more and more every day when I'm out, like, shopping for groceries. I'm like, oh, this store has it. Oh, this store mm-hmm. has it. Um, but this is basically just – it's a it's a play on that classic, like, uh, Chinese food takeout, like, beef and broccoli. Just, like I said, I didn't feather – or, sorry, velvet. I don't know why I said feather. I didn't velvet the steaks. Um I just made the sauce and then just added that in after I cooked it. Uh, and I mean, it came out pretty, pretty, pretty tasty as I remember. Um, very simple, very easy, just goes like very quick, but, uh, I actually did my own, um, I did my own, uh, sauce with, uh, the chili paste or chili flakes versus like buying it. So that's a thing you could sub it into. And then I use soba noodles, which I think are really phenomenal, uh, versus putting it over rice, uh, with some, uh, sesame seeds and green onions for garnish and just, uh, came together really well, but that would be an ideal recipe too for not for the mock tender because you're cooking it very quickly. It would be better for the flat iron. Uh, if you wanted to, to even cut it up into like chunks and just get it really cooked really quickly. I got one for, for the, um, flat iron, uh, something you can do that's really nice with steaks like flat iron or, um, is to grill it or sear it, slice it thinly and drape it over a really nice salad. Um, and the, the flavor of the, the heavy duty flavors are going to kind of pair nicely with the sharp dressing you might have on it. So say a citrusy or, or a sharp French style vinaigrette or whatever is going to kind of cut through the, the meatiness and they work really well together. So I have, um, a grilled venison steak and pe- like grilled peach salad. Um, mm-hmm. and that's really nice. It's like, uh, you're basically making like, um, like a honey and balsamic, uh, vinaigrette with a little bit of Dijon mustard. Uh, grilling up some really nice uh, flat iron steaks until they're medium rare, slicing them thin, uh, grilling, like cutting your peaches in half, taking the, the pits out, and then grilling those as well, which kind of softens them up really nice. And uh, I, I did, I like a really kind of like stronger salad, so I used like arugula for the pepperiness and radicchio for some bitterness, um, some some blue cheese or goat cheese, maybe some fennel, which goes really nicely with peaches and some cucumber in there. And, uh, 
yeah, it makes a really nice kind of a summery salad. So I think wild game is often kind of overlooked for in the summertime. Like people like making kind of rich and heavier dishes with wild game, but sometimes they go really nicely with like refreshing light summery flavors. So I thought I wanted to highlight a salad like that. No, I think that's really cool, especially would fit well this time of year, as you mm. mentioned, like good, good, nice salad. Yeah, peach season's coming up, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. We try to go take a, here in Colorado, we have a Palisade peaches. Mm. They come from out by, uh, out in the western part of the state. We try to get out there, and, and uh, my goal is, being it's my last year here, uh, to get out and, and collect some Palisade peaches straight from the farm. Maybe straight from the tree if they'll let me, <laughs> and uh, incorporate that into some delicious foods. Um, I had one last one too with the uh, with the mock tender, and I wanted this is your recipe, but I'll talk <laughs> about it. Ha ha! Is the venison shank ragu? So I would take instead of the shanks, sub in your mock tenders, and uh, I mean this is basically this is that low slow braise. Uh, it's an oven braise, so thinking about two types of braising, you can do stovetop braising and you can do oven braising. This I would probably recommend uh, for an oven braise in the Dutch oven uh, to get that. But with this uh, recipe, I wouldn't I wouldn't think you're gonna have to braise the mock tender as long as you would have to a shank because you're you don't have as much connective tissue in the mock tender as you do the shank. Um, so really, you're just looking to get it tender. You're not looking to break down collagen and things like that. So, um, lots of cool stuff in here. So for those who don't know, uh, like a ragu is a very uh, flavorful tomato-based braised uh, sauce that you would put atop pasta or things like that. And uh, Adam does a great job with this recipe here with like red wine and balsamic vinegar and all delicious types of things in there uh, along with carrots and onions. And it's a little more hearty than your traditional like marinara. I would say it's got some bolder flavors in there too and some other, uh, other flavors as well. But uh, definitely a good candidate for the mock tender if you're looking for something different. But I think we gave a good variety. We've hit on uh, just steaks. We've hit on CV. We've hit on um, braising, on grilling, stir fries. We talked about uh, velveting. Holy smokes! Like Ooh. we've uh, we've dissected these two cuts pretty well. So I don't know. Did you have another recipe, or you feeling good? Feeling pretty good. I think um, I don't think we mentioned it, or maybe we did, but uh, both would be great for tacos. Whether it's steak tacos with a flat iron, or you could braise the mock tender um, into like a shredded taco, or you could marinate the mock tender and grill it really quickly. For you know, there's a basically anything. Either of these steaks would be excellent in tacos in a myriad of different ways. So that's you can never go wrong with that too. Yep. And if you're a big fan of tacos, you should go to our website and check out our venison taco shirt. Uh, our deer tacos, pretty phenomenal. But um, no, that's a great point as well. Um, no, I think that kind of closes it out. I, I, I think we're leaving everybody with a wealth of information about these two particular cuts. And so um, we'll look at going in to our next uh, our next podcast on butcher specific we'll look at uh what do we call it the arm roast uh we'll go into the shoulder clod the arm roast 
no, what do we call it? Yeah, the shoulder clod slash arm roast. So next we'll have an episode on the shoulder clod and, and arm roast uh, after we have a guest episode, uh, generally. But that that's a cool cut. So if you think about the cuts from, uh, that's basically going to be your, what is it, your scapula, your humerus, your radius, your ulna. So that's the muscle group uh, covering the humerus, which we're going to break uh, we're going to leave whole as a roast and discuss it in detail, um, much like we did today. So exciting cuts, and then we'll just have one more, and we'll have worked our way, or a couple more, we'll have worked our way through the whole front shoulder. Um, maybe we might combine that as I see some natural fit, but uh, I think I think this is a good pace uh, to work through. But yeah, so anyway, so um, I don't know, I'll kick it over to you, Adam. Last thoughts? Yeah, I have a, it's a bit of a big last slot because I always have big last slots, but I just want to talk just briefly about the, the names, which you went over a little bit already, but uh, I had someone online call me an idiot because I, I mentioned some different names for, for uh, Crappy, the fish, and he had never heard them before, so he could call me an idiot because uh, he didn't think they existed. Mm-hmm. He just thought in his own little world, they, they only are named one thing. And that's something that we, you might run into with all these different cuts that we're talking about because they, it's ridiculous how many names there are for these little cuts. I'm just going to run through them really quick um, just to exemplify that. So for the flat iron, uh, I found online, it's known as a top blade steak, the top blade fillet, shoulder top blade steak, butler steak, feather blade steak, oyster blade steak, an haute palette in French, can, in French Canadian, uh, modified panel in, Fran- in France, the macros. Amarucha sin hueso in Spanish, in Mexican. Um, in the mock tender, we were looking at a chuck fillet steak, a chuck clawed tender, a shoulder tender, a petite fillet, a fish fillet, a fish steak, a chuck tender steak, tender medallion, shoulder petite tender, scotch tender, bistro fillet. It's ridiculous. These are all names for the exact same cuts. So that's something you might encounter if you're looking for more information on these cuts. Uh, so you, you might need to exert a little bit of patience when you're searching for it and, and find a few different websites, like don't just rely on one, unless it's harvesting nature, which we know we're talking about, but, uh, (laughs) but look for a few and and make sure you're, you're dealing with the right steak. Maybe talk to some butchers, uh, just make sure that, that what you're dealing with is the right one, because sometimes the names overlap each other as well. So that can just be a confusing and potentially frustrating thing when dealing with these, these smaller cuts, less known cuts that we're dealing with. Um, but yeah, yeah, I just wanted to bring that about just to, to let people know that what you're looking for isn't always going to be called the same thing. What we're talking about might be called something else in your neighborhood. So I'll, I'll emphasize that as like I was doing research uh, when writing some recipes on the mock tender and found out that there is a uh, very uniquely – uh, Peruvian term for this cut that's used in a very uniquely Peruvian dish that nobody outside of Peru calls it um, or even cuts it in the same way, uh, which is very interesting. So uh, I'll reinforce that as like, yeah, you're definitely going to find some regional nuances and some geographical nuances and even, I would say, probably butcher shop to butcher shop nuances um especially for some of these cuts that are probably a little more traditional uh like the mock tender versus like the flat iron which was you know more late more 
modernly created and publicized. So that's probably got a pretty good marketing package behind it to be like, everybody knows what a flat iron is if you know what a flat iron is. So thanks, Applebee's. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, uh, for me too, it's just like, it's this cool avenue we're traveling down of like diving deep into these cuts, uh, you know, and getting a little more understanding about it and sharing some some knowledge specifically on there. And I hope that, you know, as a, as a butcher, it's it's helping you out. It's getting you more comfortable to where you're willing and, and motivated to get in there and break some of these cuts out and not just toss them in the grind pile. But I think to uh, fun things to experiment is, is you open your mind to the world of, of different meat cuts. But we'll make sure all the recipe notes are in here. Uh, we'll include uh, some of the resources and stuff that we talked about if, if we've got links and stuff to them. But uh, other than that, I think it's pretty pretty good show. And encourage everybody, if you aren't already, make sure you're following Adam on social media as the Intrepid Eater and Harvest to Nature. Uh or adventures for food uh for myself and um overall i think you enjoy the the content in which we're sharing and then uh whatever podcast platform you're listening to please punch that five star button uh leave us a review tell us we're doing wrong or you know tell us we're doing right thanks everybody have a good night